Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. You took my opening line. I was going to thank my wife. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, I don't know, you remember exactly what the title was, but basically I intend to speak tonight about Hanukkah, the history of Hanukkah. There's a lot of uh, discussions. There's a lot of discussions in terms of doctoras and uh, various sorts of interpretations of, you know, what the meaning of Hanukkah is and so forth. Morales, you know, wrote a whole book on the subject. That's not at all what I intend to speak about tonight. I intend to confine my remarks more to, as far as I can, the history of the period, which is responsible because of its complicated nature for making Hanukkah uh, the most or Paul, the least understood of the uh, holidays in terms of what actually happened. The problem is not unique to Hanukkah. Actually, uh, when you think about it, most of our holidays are uh, not clearly defined in the original sources. For example, uh, Rosh Hashanah is not referred to in the Chumash at the beginning of the year, is it? For the first day of the seventh month. But it's anything about Rosh Hashanah or Yom HaDin even. Uh, we're not told why Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur. Why is it a day of atonement? We're not told in the Chumash that Shavuos is the date when the Torah is given. We're not told why Sukkot should be celebrated on the 15th of Tishrei. What's special about Sukkot being on the 15th of Tishrei? I thought they accepted Sukkot all year long for 40 years or wherever. However, Hanukkah is unique because Hanukkah doesn't have any sources. See, Hanukkah is post-biblical. It happened after the period of the Tanakh, as we all know. <coughs> so at least for all the other holidays, the ones that are Doraisa, meaning that they're in the Chumash, we have Sukkim, in which the Chazal are able to darshan and explicate and elucidate the uh, various meanings, the layers of the holiday, the halachos. And even the other uh, post-Chumash holiday, which is Purim, we have a Megillus Esther, which is part of the Tanakh. And again, there's a whole Masechta, as you know, devoted to tearing apart and analyzing in the minutest detail the various pasukim in the book of Esther in order to explain for us as much as possible what Purim is all about. But when we come to Hanukkah, we do not have any of this. Hanukkah is really post-biblical. It is after the entire period of the Tanakh. And uh, furthermore, I always start off by pointing out that Hanukkah, we have no information about in rabbinic literature. All the stories that you and I have heard of since we were children, such as the story of Matisiel killing the uh, guy at the, at the altar and saying, Mila Shem Eli, or Judah Maccabee, or, or various things that they did when they went to the base of Mish. All this is not found in what we call uh, Chazal, in rabbinic literature. It's not in the Gemara, it's not in the Talmud Babli, the Yushami, or the Medrash, or any of the ancillary literature of the Tanaim and the Amorim, or anything like that. All the stories that we know of Hanukkah, that we've heard since we were children, uh, are from a species of literature which theoretically is prohibited for a Jew to read, and that's called the Apocrypha. Okay? In fact, they're all found in this book, first book of Maccabees, right? which is not a Hebrew book. You look at the notes, Greek and English, meaning that it's, a, that it's a part of a body of works, a bunch of books that were written after the uh, Tanakh, after the uh, Bible, as we understand it, was codified and canonized in the time of the Anshi Knesset Agdola. And when the Anshi Knesset Agdola sealed 
the Tanakh, and they said that these 24 books are in, and anything else is out, the anything else is out that they were referring to was this, and other books of that type, meaning books written in the time of Bayashani, which according to the Mishnah, at the end of Sanhedrin, is prohibited for any from Jew to read, and not only that, but it says, Anyone who reads these books, like this, right, has no portion in the world to come. See? That at least is the, is the uh, definition of the Tommy Rishalmi on that mission. Okay? You'll ask me then what happens. I'm going to have a book like this. Are we on tape? <laughs> Uh, if, you, if you really are very interested in the halakhic aspects of it, uh, wait until the art scroll Sanhedrin <laughs> 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 comes out, where I can assure you there's a long footnote about 15 different paragraphs on the subject. But very briefly, the red footnote, the Meiri, and all the, the uh, uh, and it's in the following context, that the Gemara itself quotes from the Apocrypha, from the uh, Book of Ben Sira. Some of you may have heard of it, some of you may not have heard of it, but the Sefer Ben Sira, is, uh, was a Hebrew book, written at the time of Baisheni, at the time of Shimon Atzadik. It is more or less a from book, but there's nothing, at least that I can recall, being objectionable in it, and, um, you know, most of it. And uh, the Gemara, you know, sometimes Darshan is discussed it, back and forth, they're not sure what to do with it. And the question of the older Rishenim says, well, how can the Gemara even bring up such a thing? I thought the person who reads such a thing is Ain Lochei well, the more doesn't answer that, but the Rishonim say, well, it must mean, obviously, that you can read it, you can't learn it. So you can't treat it as Torah. See? We don't read Gemara. We don't read, hopefully, Mishnahis. We're not even supposed to read our prayers. But uh, we learn them. So you can sit with a harusa or something like that, and each word has significance. If someone treats any of the apocryphal literature in that way, then there's something wrong with it. Then, it, then he doesn't understand the sharp distinction we draw between what is the Tanakh, what is canonized for us, and what is outside, what is forbidden. But if a person just wants to read it for the information, then he may. That's the bottom line in the halacha. Uh, there's a ritzvah about this, there's a meiri about this, there's a whole bunch of rishon about this in different places. So there's nothing wrong, necessarily, with having the book. However, how did this even survive? The Frum Jews, the Chazal, the Antichyasagdola, the Sanhedrin, made a campaign against this, as is evident from the words of the Mishnah, to suppress this literature. And the reason they did so is because they didn't want this falling into, by accident, the Tanakh. They didn't want people blurring the distinction between what is sacred and what is not and making this part of the Bible, which the Christians did. This has survived in the Greek because it's in the New Testament. Okay? And the reason it's in the New Testament, even though it has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever, is the Christian church, at the very beginning, whenever they put their Bible together, included all these books, 14 in number, uh, plus a number of others besides that, in the New Testament, and they did it for their particular reason. And the reason they did it was because otherwise they had a big problem. And that problem is, we have, as you know, what the Christians call the Old Testament or the New Testament. Well, the Old Testament was over 500 years ago. Then there was no more Nevi'im, no more Ruch HaKodesh, no more nothing. And all of a sudden, now you're claiming that it started off all over again? doesn't make any sense. It was a hard claim to support. Therefore, they had to maintain, and they did maintain, and they do maintain, that it's not true that the Bible ever ended. That's what the Jews say because they're very bigoted. But in reality, it continued along all the time. And these books that we're referring to here are just as Kaddish as anything else. And therefore, the whole period 
of Ruch HaKodesh goes from the Old Testament through the Apocrypha into the New Testament. It only ends at the end of the New Testament. So it's a matter of being tendentious more than anything else. However, for our point of view, and especially because tonight we're talking about Hanukkah, it so happens ironically, as I say, all the information, or 99% of the information that we have about the holiday of Hanukkah is found in basically the New Testament, if you wish. See? It's not in there. It's not, I, I use it. If you understand what I said, it's not a question of being in the New Testament, but it's, a, it's in those Greek works written by Jews, which they included. Uh, and there you have it. So there happened to be, uh, the, you know, the, the, there's 14 or 15 of them, and there's Maccabees, the first book of Maccabees, the second book of Maccabees, the third, the fourth. The, the third and fourth have nothing to do with Hanukkah whatsoever. They have nothing to do with anything, but the first and second do. And the first book of Maccabees, is the source of all the stories that become very popular, the source of all the stories that we've ever heard of. You see? And it's more or less, and how more and how less, I will try to explain later on, that's a very controversial issue, it's more or less a from book, which gives a straightforward account, written from the point of view of a from Jew, of the events of this period. You see? More, and I don't want to spend a great deal of time doing the literary analysis of the first book of Maccabees, but you just take it from me. It originally was written in Hebrew, and, uh, and more or less, it's written from a from uh, point of view. However, as you see, for us, as from Jews, this is quite problematic. Because if I were, as I mentioned earlier today, to uh, you know, write down, copy down all the chazals that I found anywhere on the subject of Hanukkah, in terms of the Maccabees, the story of Hanukkah and all the rest of it, I wouldn't even be able to fill a page. It's very, very little. Uh, the word Maccabee doesn't exist in rabbinic literature. Okay? It's a Greek word. And this, this book is from the Greek. It's called Maccaboy. Nobody even knows what, exactly what it means. They're only guesses. But uh, as I say, what we've been learned as children with the Hashem or something like that is a made-up thing. Because we, don't, we can't dash in a word that doesn't exist. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's possible it's true. Anything's possible because we don't know. But it's pretty far-fetched. And it's not like there's a Gemara over there, which Rashi or the Mepharshim were going into, and there's some kind of Mesorah as to the derivation of this word or something of that nature. There's nothing like that whatsoever. Judah Maccabee doesn't exist in Chazal. Um, many of the things that we know about Hanukkah do not exist in the Chazal. There is, there is one source, really, aside from a few lines here and there in the Gemara. There's only one source that has any information in terms of Chazal on the holiday of Hanukkah, and that is a book called uh, the Megillus Titus. Okay? Megillus Titus is a short treatise, which is a list of days. It's like a calendar. And uh, it's really a bunch of days during the year, about 40 or 50 of them, when it's also Lemisbud Bahan, also Lishanus Bahan, those who learn Gemara enough. These are days in which were recorded famous events that happened to the Jewish people, post-biblical, known as in the time of Bayashani, which were considered sufficiently important to treat them like half-holiday. They're not Osir Basiyas Malacha, you can go to work, so it's more or less like a Lagba Omer type situation, or a Hanukkah situation. Hanukkah is one of the holidays mentioned in the Megillus Tainas. It is the only holiday that survives. The Gemara even says, black and white, in Tainas and Shabbos, Butla, Megillus Tainus. All the other days in Megillus Tainus have lost their legal significance. It is no longer, for example, prohibited to fast on the 23rd of Eor. It is no longer prohibited to fast on the 6th day of Sivan, of uh, Elul. Right? 
23rd of Egypt is when they finally tore down the great fortress in Jerusalem. It was a big day, and it's mentioned there, and you had the whole celebration. Uh, the sixth day of Elul is when Herodus, Herod dropped dead, and that was a big, wonderful occasion because he was out to kill everybody. Uh, and there are many days like this, you see, but they all have no significance to us whatsoever, halakhically speaking, with the exception of Hanukkah, which is the only day in the entire calendar of Miguel's Tinus, which is more than one day, which I'll have to speak about later, because that's of extreme significance for the understanding of the origins originally of what Hanukkah is all about. The original Takonus Chazal, which is found, as I say once again, in the Miguel's Tinus. If you look it up, I'll read it for you, I hope, later on. If you look for under the entry of month of Kislev, on the 25th day of Kislev, then you'll find that it says over here, on the 25th of Kislev, is the day of Hanukkah, eight days you're not allowed to fast or have Hesped, and then there's a certain description over there. This book, the Megillus Tinus, is the only book that was permitted by religious Jews, by the Chazal, to be published after the Tanakh and before the Mishnah. See, it is the sole piece of literature that was published. As you know, we have a tradition of Torah Shabbat Sav, and Torah Shabbat Peh, an oral law and a written law. The Torah Shabbat Sav had to be written down. The written law, many think incorrectly, was not allowed to be written down. That's not true. You could write it down, but you could not publish it. Okay? So no books were published after the canonization of the Bible. Okay? Now, a lot of people kept notes. You know, Shobanon kept notes, David Amal kept notes, people kept notes, and so forth. But there's all the differences we know, if any of us has ever taken a class, between the notes we have in our notebook and a published book. And a notebook was permitted to be published. The Rambam speaks about this at a great length for those who are interested in the introduction to the Mishnah Torah, it's very famous. And also in the introduction to the entire Mishnahis. That being the case, we see the significance of the fact that they made an exception in this case over many, many centuries to allow uh, the Megillus Times to be written at all. The Gemara says that the reason they did it was Chavivin Aleim Yisurin. That there was the Sufferings that the people had endured were very meaningful for them. The people who had lived through these horrible times and had seen these good occasions were determined that uh, you know, such a date should not be forgotten. For example, if you lived in the time of Hordus, it was worse than living under Stalin. And the day he died, you know, many people said, you know, we're going to live. Our children are not going to be wiped out. You know, our family is not going to be destroyed. This is unbelievably significant. And they determined, and the Chazal went along with it because they agree with them, this is the yeah, economic. This should be written down and never forgotten. Other facts of great historical importance to us, they couldn't care less about. But the position of Chazal in general is they couldn't care less about history. That is unfortunate for those of us who were trying to find out what happened way back when. But the general tradition of Chachamenu, Zichron al was that they're not interested one bit in history per se, and what happened as such. Any story that's written in the Tanakh is not written in the Tanakh because to, to inform us of the history of that period, but it's strictly written there for Muslim purposes. If we find any history of David Amela or the kings of Israel or anything like that, or the story of Purim, which may be a slight exception, because as you know, the story of Purim they never wanted to accept, and Esther sort of pushed it into the uh, Tanakh against their will. But leaving aside the Miguel Sester, the uh, other books that are there, even if they have any stories for us, are strictly there because in the opinion of Ezra and Nehemiah, whoever it was that canonized the Bible, they held that this is going to be a good Muster Haskell for generations. As the Gemara puts in the Megillah, any Nevoah, any prophecy, or any information that had a permanent value in terms of its Muster to us today, down the ages, was permitted to be uh, written down and perpetuated. Anything else was cut, no matter how interesting. We, we, we love 
to have the original book of Shmuel or Yoshua and have all the more information about them. I mean, we would love to have any sliver of evidence we would have of Avram Avinu or anybody like this. But be, you know, we, we yearn for it today, we who are more historically conscious in the 20th century, let's say, the modern period. But we don't have it. That's it. Now, in that context, you see the problems of trying to grapple with Hanukkah. The only information we're going to have, as I told you, is going to be found in terms of Chazal and Megillus Titus. There is a few other places here and there, but very, very little. It doesn't amount to anything. Okay? <coughs> Russia's on Pesukim and so forth. I could sit here now and spend the next three minutes going through them, but it'll be no point. So that is what I want to start with. And that is to say that uh, when we deal with the problem of Hanukkah, we have a problem with sources. The main source that we have is a non-Chazal source. It became famous in Jewish history, even to the time of the Rishonim, through the history of Josephus, who lived about 200 years after Hanukkah, more or less, the time of the Chorb Beis Amigas, many people have heard of Josephus, who was not from Jew either. As a matter of fact, uh, well, he was a traitor, uh, but that's not the point. Uh, the point is that the history book he wrote is flawed, especially from our point of view, by the fact that uh, even though he lived in the time of Chazal, but he, he, uh, he, had a, he didn't like them. He was a member of the Tzedukim, more or less. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but this is not the time to go into it. Basically, uh, Josephus was not from Jew. Uh, on the other hand, he was not from Chazal. He liked history. He was interested in it. And he wrote a very famous fat volume of history, which basically is all the only history book we have, unfortunately, of the Bayashani period. He wrote it in Greek when he was living in Rome after the base of Migdash was destroyed. He had joined the Roman army. And uh, it became famous, as I say, because it's the only place, source we have for many of these stories. I'll just tell you something aside. We've all heard about Masada. You've been in Israel, you've been to Masada. The only source that there was ever such a thing called Masada is in Josephus, who wasn't there. He, got it. he says, he says, a Roman soldier told me such and such a thing happened. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true. When, 20, 30 years ago, they went and excavated it in Echanami. Most of the stuff worked out. It was indeed as he had described it. But, again, an historian is interested in the degree of, of source reliability, as they say. So it's not in the Gemara or anything in the Chazal, or, uh, you know, or even Josephus didn't even see it. It's, just, it's aid me paid, as we say. It's a third-hand source, which why many, many times I'm asked, and other people ask, as well, that were they right to kill themselves in Masada? Were they not right to kill themselves? And so forth, and it's impossible from a halachic point of view to make any statement whatsoever, because the halacha doesn't know of this. See, the Gemara and the others don't discuss this, and therefore, we can only treat this as, a, so to speak, as I say, a second-hand kind of incident, and we have no idea whether they were religious Jews or not religious Jews, and what the situation was. Because when all said and done, we are not going to base, uh, you know, a Torah opinion on something found in Josephus. Okay? Is that clear? If there are any questions, by the way, I don't mind it at all. They had a there. That's correct. So I mean, they were, uh, that's, that's a point in their favor. Yeah, I, I, that is true. On the other hand, without going into, I don't want to get too much <laughs> off the subject, uh, the bottom line is the people that were there were from the Sikrika, uh, the, the uh, extreme uh, zealots who, to whom the Chazal were opposed. So don't make the mistake of saying that someone at that time who wasn't from was what we call today not from. There were people at that time who would argue with the Chazal and not keep certain laws and might keep, may be very strict on uh, the laws of purity. As a matter of fact, you've all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those people were a bunch of nuts. That's <laughs> no, true. They were, they, 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 listen, they were a bunch of nuts, but they were very big on purity. 
They said they had a lot of mikvahs there. But uh, they were crazy. They thought the world was about to come to an end, and they had their own laws and everything. See? Having said that, like I said, I don't want to get too far off course. We're going to speak tonight there for about Hanukkah, but I needed to make this in terms of an uh, of a, of a introductory statement, even, no matter how long it takes, because you won't understand the problem unless we de deal with the sources. Now, to the story. Hanukkah itself... Um, is uh, somewhat complicated. We all remember that uh, the Jews had been under the Persian Empire after the destruction of the first temple. By Nebuchadnezzar bubble, 70 years later, the Persians came in and the Jews were for a period of 150, it's not clear exactly how many years, under the Persians. And when Alexander the Great came and destroyed the Persian Empire, and he succeeded to the rulership of the world. I mentioned before today that uh, Alexander the Great, the famous story with him is that he conquered the world or at least all the world outside of China and Far East, and uh, was really a god. He called himself a god, and everybody acknowledged he was a god. And he had, you know, he really, think about this. You know, the guy ran the whole world. See, he was absolute ruler. But when he came back from his uh, last campaign, he, had, he threw a big party and drunk himself to death. And he had a three-day drinking party. Okay? And... That's right. He had a three-day three drinking party. He wanted more and more and more. His servants were afraid to tell him to stop, and therefore he drunk himself to death. Which is, I always, I can never forbear to point this out, that this uh, is for sure, at least in my opinion, the source for the famous Chazal in uh, Pirkei Ovis, which says, Ezo Gibra Kovish Yitro. Who is the hero? The person who can control himself. All the, I'm talking about Hanukkah now, so I'm not talking about Pirkei Ovis. But I'll just tell you this, that every mimer in Pirkei Ovis, or in Chazal in general, but certainly in Pirkei Ovis, was not said abstractly as an aphorism or a proverb, something cute or clever, epigram, but we're all based on concrete situations. And you'll have to take my word for that for the moment. But every single saying in Pirkei Ovis is historically based. The first parak is easy to see that. I mean, it's obvious. Okay? First parak is easy to see because they go down the zugos, and if you just know a little bit about the time in which they lived, you'll see it black and white. If you know a little bit of Gemara in a few cases, the other chapters of Pirkei are not that easy to see, but I guarantee you that uh, I can point it to you, to your satisfaction. And uh, here again, you have Ezo Kibar Kovishes Yitro. The arch example of this is Alexander the Great. I mean, he could conquer the world, but he couldn't conquer his addiction. See, that's the greatest irony and most philosophically profound statement you can make about the man. You see? Well, after Alexander the Great died, he didn't think he was going to die at 33, so he left no will or anything like that. Or, according to an alternative version, he left a bunch of wills. But the bottom line was that he had a baby that was killed, and therefore his general struggled over who should control this great empire that he had erected. It took a 20-year civil war with a lot of people getting killed until finally, at the end, three guys emerged on top. And they, and they founded dynasties that ruled the world, which is called the Hellenistic world in, in, by world history, the Hellenistic era, because these three guys had been generals of Alexander the Great. He was Greek, Macedonian Greek, and, and he advanced the Greek culture all over the world. And for this two, three, four hundred years, all of the Middle East and into Asia, into India and Pakistan, uh, the Greek language and the Greek culture was dominant. It's amazing. For a, period, a short period of time, 
all the local cultures, which are so strong and you know rooted in the Middle East, were just like knocked out. And instead, the Greek culture, temples, language, coinage, culture, literature, dominated everywhere. Alexander the Great died in 322 BC, something like that, and I think that's exactly 322, so figure it out. So it was 322, and then by the time the Romans come in, it's about 300 years later, more or less. So, and the Romans, in a certain degree, also picked up a lot from Alexander the Great, but like I said, we won't go into that right now. The point I'm saying is, how did it impact upon the Jewish people? The Jews were mainly concentrated in Eretz Israel and in Babel, but uh, the, the Hellenistic culture impacted and profound, uh, profoundly upon the Jewish people. In fact, we've been permanently affected by its Ad Hayom the very form, in fact, of the ultimate organization of the mission and the Gemara and all this has a lot of Hellenistic uh, influence to it in terms of its uh, types of organization. And the best example I always give in my class is that the uh, Godel Ador, after Shimon Atzadik, was whom? As we know from Pirkei Elvis, I'm taking the Sishtocho. Look in Pirkei Elvis, in the third thing in Pirkei Elvis. He's the one who says, don't serve the master in order to get a reward. That's very famous. Now, I repeat, what was the man's name? Antigonus of Soho. How do you get a great rabbi with a name like Antigonus? That is as Greek as you get. Yeah, really. Right? It's like I always say, if we didn't instead of Ramosha Feinstein, you had uh, Rabbi Walter Feinstein, Rabbi Harold Feinstein. You see, these are not names that we associate with great Rabboni. And this obviously wasn't just his Gaisha name, this is used in the Mishnah. Yeah. It's not like, you know, his name was Avram, and at work he called himself Antigonus. You see? <laughs> this was his name. So what does this tell us? That even in the uh, most elevated Torah circles, you see? It was an extreme, a, a very a, a <clears throat> profound degree of acculturation. Okay, so people didn't think that this is a strange or whatever. However, we want to explain it. Many of the, by the way, the names of the Chazal are non-Jewish names. Tarfon, Trifon, Trifon is a very Greek name, and there's a there's a whole bunch of them. All which speaks the fact that uh, you know there was a certain you couldn't we can't deny that the, the, the Jewish people were impacted very heavily by the Greek the civilization. The Jews also, like everyone else, were knocked down. And they said, wow, this is unbelievable. This culture is so uh, amazing. As I always point out, until the Greeks came in, fat was in. Ever since the Greeks, skinny is in. I mean, who, who made that up? Right? Why? It's all a matter of taste. But it became, from then till today, the standard of what's called good looking. You see, they brought it in. Uh, the entire Greek style of architecture and of uh, what's considered a class and of uh, literature and literary forms and so many other things are all, are all taken from, uh, you know, from the Greeks and have incorporated into Western civilization. You know, a lot of the things we do are Greek. We don't realize it. Okay? Well, college, obviously. But, uh, you know, you, you, uh, even before in sports, it's the big deal because, uh, well, I'll, I'll go into that later if I may. The point is that this had a tremendous impact upon the Jewish people. Uh, I'll, uh, it's good to remember once in a while, if we look down the entire period of Klai Yisrael, that uh, we have had, as a people and as a you know, religion, a couple of big challenges that knocked us out for a while. And then other challenges weren't big at all. Uh, the first set of great challenges was uh, that of Avodah Zarah. Uh, 
you know, the Torah was given against the context of Avodah Zarah. Avraham Avinu emerged in a, in a world of paganism. The entire world was uh, polytheistic. It's not a question of them worshiping idols. It's a question of believing in a multiplicity of powers. Because they said, listen, you know, it makes sense. There's day and there's night, there's hot and there's cold. You know, there's so many different things out there. It bespeaks different intelligences. For the Jews to come along and say, no, there's only there's one intelligence behind the whole thing. And then to try to explain why is there good and evil and all the rest of it was a revolutionary idea. And a lot of the Jews, as we know, didn't feel so great about it. I mentioned before that the Chazal included certain books in the Tanakh and left other ones out. And they did so for a muster purpose. What is the message, the story, behind the experience of Claudius Royal in the time of the Nach? It is a sad one. It was, a Ju it was a Judaism versus paganism, and paganism won. Yeah. Right? We were in exile for 800 years or something like that. And it was supposed to be that the Jews were supposed to set up their society and at least not be affected, it, affected by the Goyim. And it didn't work. The great, great majority of the Jewish people completely collapsed and were distressed. The ten lost tribes. Just, right? That's rogue, minion, rogue, minion of Claudius Royal. What's it all about? Because in spite of the Nevi'im and in spite of all the others, and in spite of the Torah that was around, the majority of the Jewish people, for a variety of reasons, went for the Egel Azov, they went for the Baal and the Asherah. You see? And the result was that Hashem warned them over and over again, and when things reached the limit, they were destroyed by Ashur. And what happened to the rest of the Jewish people in Yehuda? The exact same thing. They would not listen, despite all of the Nevi'im and even the good kings and, and all that stuff. And we talked about this in the Kinos of Tisha And they were destroyed. The only thing is, since the Rav promised that the Jewish people would never be totally destroyed, and uh, he wanted to cure them, or however we understand it. So instead of being totally wiped out as the ten lost tribes, weren't they were exiled to Babel? And by the time the Jews came back from Babel, by the time of the Second Temple period, we have the remarkable phenomenon that the Jews are no longer interested in paganism. Never again in Jewish history, I repeat, never again in Jewish history do we find um, a, any Jewish interest in the idea of of, of, of paganism, even though the rest of the world still was. You see, it's almost like there was an inoculation at, at work. The Gemara, as many may know, speak about the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah had to pray specifically and ask Hashem to be mavakal the Yitzhar of Avodah However, we understand that fact, the historical fact is that in the Second Temple period and afterwards, there was no interest in Avodah Zarah. When we're going to speak later on about the Hellenistic Jews at the time of Hanukkah, let us remember that these people didn't really believe in the gods of Greece. It was strictly politics, strictly power involved. You see? Uh, the second great challenge that Jewish people faced was this point of the Hellenistic civilization, which was so powerful and pervasive everywhere. The Greeks presented a whole worldview and system, systems of philosophy, mainly of superstition, however. Uh, it's a big mistake to think that everybody was a Socrates or a Plato. Very, very few were. The primary Greek civilization was a certain crass of Ozar, if you want to get down to it. Tricked out with fancy phrases and a little bit of Stoic philosophy thrown in, but ultimately um, it didn't stand scrutiny, as I may explain tonight, or I may not have time to explain tonight. But this is really the kind of, during its time, it was amazing. It's hard for us to understand today the attraction it's had because we're living in a different time. But believe me, it was uh, very, very powerful. And the Jewish religion, again, almost buckled. We almost went down just like everyone else. Hanukkah has something to do with this. Just to jump ahead a little bit and give you an idea of what I'm talking about, in the Middle Ages, you see, there was no such great challenge to Judaism. 
The Jews lived in a Christian world and in a Muslim world, in tiny helpless minorities. We do not find in the Middle Ages, for over 1,500 years, that the Jews were, you know, felt, oh my goodness, how are we going to face the challenge of Christianity? How are we going to deal with Islam? The Jews were like, this is crazy, and Islam is contemptible. They didn't feel a challenge, per se. If the Jews were ever involved in debates, they were forced into it. They couldn't care less. So there's all the difference in the world, if you follow me, between the challenge to Judaism posed by Hellenism and the challenge to Judaism posed, for example, by Christianity. The Christian thing was a physical danger. The Hellenistic ones were the cultural, a, 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 a danger of values. In the modern period, however, as we know for the last 200 years, most of the Jewish people stopped being religious because Jewish people, again, have almost, almost been knocked out by the challenge of modernity and everything that that involves. Right? We have today a whole different set of values. My goodness, we're in the 90s. We have <laughs> every day new sets of values being thrown at us. But so we, and we see 200 years ago, 99% of the Jews in the world were, were from. Today, I think it's the other way around. If something happened. And this is the challenge of modernity. I think, I think that speaking today, at the end of the 20th century, we can say that those who have survived have survived. In other words, anyone who's decided by now to be from doesn't feel the values of current civilization to be a challenge to his mindset. But this was not true of our you know, parents, grandparents, relatives, and so forth that we see all around us. This is plain and simple. Isn't this not too dissimilar from the Hellenistic world? I mean, it was a... If you want to argue that, but my world, point is... It was all modern, it was yeah, all new Chinese. Yes, yes, absolutely. At one time, I it was modern and new. I mean, that's the point of it. Now, to cut to the Hanukkah story. The Jews have been ruled by Alexander the Great, then when Alexander died, they split the kingdom up in several different ways. The Jews originally ended up falling into uh, the Egyptian uh, empire. In other words, one of Alexander the Great's generals grabbed Egypt. And uh, as I always put it, you have to understand, to be very blunt, to, uh, to understand the uh, situation in the Hellenistic world, you're dealing with mafias. You're not dealing with kings. Right? They were kings. They founded dynasties. They had armies. But they were strictly mafias. It's not a question of values. These people had no culture whatsoever. They ruled by total force. And basically, they would kill anyone that disagreed with them. Their whole power lay in having a big mercenary army, which meant that all, all their power lay in having enough money to pay the army. Their number one priority in life, and the number one priority to preserve their life, was to have enough money to meet payroll. If they did not, they were killed. Their wives were killed. Their children were killed. Their friends were killed. Their animals were killed. Their houses were burned down. Everything. And therefore, you had a bunch, the type of person that survives in such an environment and becomes a king is not a nice person. It's not a person with culture, not a person with any sensitivity. The reverse. So all the Ptolemaic kings and all the Seleucid kings and all the other kings he wanted to, and anybody who was a ruler whatsoever in these three or four hundred years of the Greek civilization that we speak about with such grandeur and glory were nothing but a bunch of godfathers. And I, I use that term advisedly. I'm not exaggerating, I assure you. These people were people who plotted to kill their own children, children killed their fathers, wives against husbands, poison, this, that, and the other. You could make 10,000 soap operas and it wouldn't come close to reading three pages in Plutarch or Polybides. Right? That's the way it went. That's the world. I'm not that sure if it's so different today. So we shouldn't go, wow. But uh, at least in certain countries. Right? I mean, honestly speaking, you know, in certain countries it's like that today. But these were the leading powers of the ancient world. And these are the people in whose hands the Jewish people fell. So the Jews were for 200 years controlled by the mafia called the Ptolemaic dynasty of India, for 100 years, uh, of Egypt, I beg your pardon. And then, after 100 years, the other one got them. The, the Seleucid dynasty, which had its headquarters in Syria, which ruled a good part of the Middle East, 
and they took a very Yisrael. It was one of the Seleucid kings, Antiochus IV, who is the villain of the Hanukkah story. However, that, as I will show you right now, is a little bit of a mistake. Not that this guy was exotic, as I just pointed out to you, none of these people were nice people. Right? All these people were murderers. However, the fact of the matter is that in the Hellenistic world and in the Roman world, there was almost, almost never any persecution of the Jewish religion. This is a very interesting fact, and it's an example of the, you know, Espel king that we always talk about in terms of the survival of the Jewish people being a direct manifestation of divine providence. You know, Frederick the Great, there's that famous story where someone was talking to him, and he said, and he didn't believe him, he was an atheist. And he said, well, how do you explain this? And how do you explain that? And he had an answer for everything. And he said, well, how do you explain the survival of the Jews? And he said, well, you got me there. I'll think of one, but I don't have an answer for that now. Because it defies so much the logic. In the Hellenistic world, as I say, you're dealing with a bunch of absolute murderers, all of whom protected the Jewish religion. They're Jewish subjects. Okay? Now, they did it for a variety of reasons. They wanted the taxes, they wanted this, they wanted whatever kind of, you know, whatever reasons a, 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 rule, a dictatorial ruler protects a minority. But the fact of the matter is that the Jewish religion was considered a legal, illicit religion in the Latin term, religione licitas, uh, all during the period of the Greeks and all during the period of the Romans. Alexander the Great, we know from Gaetia sources, okay? The Gomorrah has a whole story about how he met the Klein Gadol, about Nathan and all the rest of it. Forget that for a moment. Gaetia sources tell us, if you read the old uh, chronicles, that Alexander the Great issued a series of decrees which more or less favored the Jewish religion. And I don't remember all of them. I always remember one was that he offered the Jewish, he says any Jew who joins his army will get to keep kosher. But, uh, but more, I don't think many Jews joined his army. But you never know. Or one, one that is, makes more uh, impact is he says the Jews do not have to pay taxes during the Shemitah year. Right? Which is interesting. You wouldn't expect it from a guy like Alexander the Great, who was a ruthless person if there ever was one. See? Um, he also, if I recall, uh, allowed the uh, money that would be sent by the Jews all over the world to the Beis Hamikdash to be free of taxes. Which is, again, a remarkable sort of thing. And we don't know, by the way, if once he got into power, he might have revoked these. Because we're dealing with such dictators that one minute they feel like this, another minute they feel like that. So the best thing, to, it's very possible that by him dying from over-drinking at a party, the Jewish people may have been saved from a terrible fate. We don't know that. But, but whatever the case is, it ended up with the best scenario for the Jews, because here you had the paragon, the god of the Greek world, the greatest hero that will ever be, Alexander the Great who said the Jewish religion is a legal religion and has rights and all the rest of it, you see? <laughs> so nobody could come later on among the Greek anti-Semites, and there were plenty of Greek anti-Semites, and very vicious ones, and the earliest species of anti-Semitic literature dates from the Greek world. But what could they do? Doggone it, you know, Alexander the Great said that, they, that it's not a cult, that it's not barbarous, even though they do such horrible things as circumcision, which to the Greek mind was just the worst thing they could imagine. And they didn't mind killing babies, huh? but you know, but yeah, they consider right. they could, well, you know, the Greeks have a cult of the body. You understand that? I mean, I'm sure many of you know that, right? The cult of the physical and of the body. So to mutilate the body, which is what they understood to be, is is a, a great cultural offense. So the Jewish values and the Greek values in this case are coming from two diametrically opposed worldviews. They cannot communicate. They don't understand each other. Okay? And we'll see later on that when Hanukkah and the wars of Hanukkah and the decrees of Antiochus. One of the, great, the foremost decrees of the Greeks was against circumcision. They thought, I'm sure, in their mind, they are really doing the best thing for the Jews. They're trying to wean them away from barbarous customs 
the way today we would look at the, you know, like the British banned wives from burning themselves when the husband dies in India, you know, according to the Hindu custom. And uh, I'm sure they're from Hindus think that that's crazy. But the British said, oh, we know what we're doing. That's exactly the way the Greeks who considered themselves to be civilized and the Jews to be barbarians looked upon the fact when they prohibited the Jews from circumcision, for example. But if a baby was born disabled, to throw up. That is true. Down. Well, some countries, yes, yeah, some no. You know, I, that I was mean, Plato did that. Yeah, yeah, some did, some did. The, uh, uh, therefore, we're, as you see, the fact is that religious persecution of Judaism was foreign to the Greek world. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, um, the primary form of Greek uh, worship, religion, I mentioned this earlier, uh, was sports. You didn't go to church on Sunday and then afterwards go to a ball game. The ball game was church on Sunday. <laughs> I, I, I mean that seriously. In other words, you know, if you were Greek, whatever day of the week it was, I don't know what their holy day was, but the point is that their religion was practiced in a public mode by going to a stadium where there were teams from this city versus that city, which competed, and you had to pay a certain small price to get in, and when you got in at the ticket gate, you also offered a, a small carbon of an offering of meal or you know something cheap so that the average uh, person can afford it. And then when you got there, before the game, they had the uh, anthem of the city, first the, this city and then that city, and uh, then there were a couple other songs there, then they would have the game, and the winning side ever felt great, and the losing side ever felt bad. And this, of course, is trans this has survived, as you know, down until today. We've only secularized what is a Greek religious custom. Instead of singing a religious song, we sing the national anthem. But ultimately, it doesn't make any sense. Why do I care whether these bunch of guys win over those? You see, so I'm from Baltimore. That does me any good if they win. This is, this is, but, but we think this way. This shows you how much ancient Hellenistic ideas have penetrated even into the modern consciousness. Right. I mean, people do, you cannot deny it. People do feel good when the home team wins. My goodness. But it's a, originally a Greek idea where you say like this, you say, well, if this is my team from my city and it's representing, so to speak, my god or goddess, then we're having a symbolic fight, struggle between two gods, and this one wins, that shows that you know, our side is stronger. And somehow or other, I mean, I'm not a Greek religious person, so I, I can't experience it. But that's what they experienced. You see? So this shows you that anybody, some, every time somebody goes to a ball game, they're really going to something which is, uh, in the real sense, in the real, real sense, chukas are going. Now I'm not saying you can't go to a ball game, but, uh, but it, we're speaking here from a historical and a puristic point of view, and uh, it is. It is more chukas are than Thanksgiving. It has, because the definition halachically of chukas hagoyim is something that has its origin in pagan customs. And my goodness, this was the mode of worship. Now, because this was the mode of worship, and because the Greeks were very into the idea that everyone in the city, everyone in the city, has to come and participate in the in the work in the games in the services, because this is how you express your being part of the kahal. It caused a problem for the Jews. A Jew in the Greek period for sure could not go to a ball game. I mean, this was a Zara. Plain and simple. It was impossible for a Jew to, in any capacity, participate in any of the sports because there was no such thing as secular sports. This was the religion. And indeed, we find in this history, historical sources, 
uh, that the Jews were exempted by all the kings everywhere from having to go to the Bogus. If you look at the great chronicles of the uh, great kings, and even the worst of them, they always say, you know, they have the municipal regulations and all the rest, and they say every Sunday morning everybody has to come to such a thing except the Jews. Every Wednesday in the third month of such and such a solstice, everybody has to come to public square and sing a song except the Jews. Everybody has to do such and such a thing except the Jews. You see? As I mentioned, in the Roman period, the Roman government was very tough in law and order. Everybody has to be in, in, inside by 9 o'clock. They had curfews everywhere, except the Jews. Right? You cannot have public gatherings on weekends of more than 20 people, except the Jews. Now, you can understand why, they, why this whole thing, after a couple of decades and, and generations, promoted a profound anti-Semitism, which spread throughout the entire civilized world. You see? The rulers were thinking in terms of bottom line. The Jews are a crazy, nutty group and all that, but listen, you know, they're law-abiding. If 20 or 30 or 40 of them get together, there's no drunk. Augustus Caesar says, he says, I'm making an exception for the Jews because when they get together for their public assemblies, and he says that even for their common suppers, when wine is consumed, he's of course referring to the uh, Seder of Pesach, yeah, and things of that nature. But he says this in the, uh, in the decree, okay? He says that even when the Jews get together in place of wine is consumed, there is no drunkenness and no disorderly conduct. Well, you know, we can all feel a little bit of pride. But imagine if I'm addressing a Gaish audience. <laughs> and they did, and they said, you know something? They think we're a bunch of drunkards. But the Jews, they're special. What do you think of that? You see? And as a result, the Hellenistic world was, is the origin of what we call anti-Semitism, of hatred of Jews as Jews. It's not a matter of a different religion or this and that. Just don't look to Jews. However, for our point of view, the question that becomes so what my Hanukkah was what happened over here to King Antiochus all of a sudden decided to persecute the Jewish religion, which is so out of step with the normative Hellenistic practice. Antiochus was a bad king, he was a Russian Marusha, he was a nut, he was this, that, and the other. Say what you want. But the normal policies <coughs> he adhered to. And as a matter of fact, as far as we know, as far as we know, he didn't persecute the Jewish communities outside of Eretz Yisrael that were under his empire. There were Jewish communities in Antioch, which was the capital of the Seleucid Empire in northern Syria. He ruled during his time Bavel, which as we know had a huge Jewish community, maybe larger than the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael. He ruled many of the 127 provinces of Achashverosh and Esther, actually, when you think about it. And as far as we know, there was no persecution of the Jews per se. So my Hanukkah, you know, what exactly happened in Hanukkah? Now, if you look at, as I say, our, for better words, our best source, you see something very interesting. If you look in the book of the Maccabees, when they describe the story of Hanukkah, according to them, it was a Jew-on-Jew -Jew problem. The very beginning, in the first chapter, it says, and I will quote you, that uh, after Antiochus, the fourth became the king of the uh, Seleucid Empire. At that time, there came forth from Israel certain lawless men. Now, law in Greek is nomos, and that's the Greek word for the Torah. So there were two Torahless men who persuaded many other Jews. And they said, quote, let us go and make a treaty with the heathen around us. Because ever since we separated from them, many evils have come upon us, unquote. The plan seemed good in their eyes, and some of the people uh, some of the people went eagerly to the king who gave them permission to perform the rituals of the heathen. 
So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem in accordance with the customs of the heathen. They also subjected themselves to uncircumcision, and they stood aloof from the sacred law, they stood aloof from the Torah. Thus, they joined the heathen and sold themselves to do evil. This is early on. So we see over here the rise among the Jewish people of another mafia. And I, again, I use that word advisedly and uh, fully cognizant of what I'm saying. What happened over here was, and we have to go back a little bit, that when the Jews, after Alexander the Great, ended up being ruled by the Egyptian Empire, the Greeks of Egypt, and then the Greeks of this place and that place, uh, the old system of government among the Jewish people broke down. The traditional system of government among the Jewish people under the Persians, and before, uh, at least under the Persians, was uh, a government the fire department. They saw it to the streets. They saw it to all the different aspects of municipal life. It was government by the uh, rabbis. That's the easiest way to put it. And it worked because we remember who we're talking about in this period. We're talking about people who most of the time were Kedole Olam or something, or people who, more importantly, wanted to be Kedole Olam. We're talking about a mindset of the rabbinical world, which, as I always like to point out in my class, believes that if you steal a Shabbat Kutah, you're going straight to Gehenna, you'll never get out. Unless you, whatever. That contrast, I mean, when you put a from person of this nature in charge of public funds, and according to Jewish law, you can never put one person in charge of public funds. It has to be a committee. Correct? That's a halacha. So, and a halacha dating back to this period. What we're dealing with is a situation of a high degree of probity, rare, if ever, of scandals. And certainly, even if we would say there were, but we're talking about tiny little things compared to the government by Greek tax collectors, Hellenistic rulers, and mafia dons. The Sanhedrin, during the period that they were ruling, despite who the ruler was, obviously always bent over backwards to try as much as possible to lighten the burden on the Jewish people. Because the Sanhedrin and Hakamim were always recruited from the ranks of the Jewish people. As we know, it's famous that the rich and the poor and the this type and that type, all elements of Jewish society were represented in the Hazal. Because the Torah itself is a certain democracy of talent, if you wish. And uh, we know that even later on in the period of the, uh, of the Gemara, the Mishnah, I should say, rather, which is after this, side by side, we would find millionaires sitting with poor paupers. This is the basis, in fact, for the Rambam's famous ruling and declaration that it's prohibited for a rabbi to get a salary. Because he said, what do you think? Hillel was a jerk? Don't you think that Hillel, who was dirt poor, starving? Right? His family was starving. And he had to sell wood in a very, very hard way of making a living. He said, don't you think if he would have opened his palm one time, they wouldn't have piled it high with diamonds? When you consider his popularity? But he wouldn't do it. And he says, none of them would do it. And he goes, on and on and on about this. And to prove that anyone who you know, takes the money is wrong. Of course, there were those who disagreed with the Ramah, but they said, it's easy for you to talk to your MD. You have a good practice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's exactly what they said. <laughs> but be that as it may, the point I'm trying to bring out is that this was the traditional government of Jewish people. For a variety of reasons, which time does not permit me to go into, period, during this period that broke down, he had, he had governed by the Greek kings of whatever dynasty. The bottom line is the bottom line. As I said, he had to make payroll. These other Jews came forward, unscrupulous people, and they said, if you put me in charge instead of these old rabbis, 
I will see to that you get 50%, 100% more tax money, you'll get it earlier, and so on and so forth. Just don't ask any questions. The kings, who had no time for the fine art of government, they needed the cash, and they need it now, so they said fine, and that is how, just as in every other place in the Hellenistic world, among the Jews as well, in the middle of Judea, there arose a, their own mafia, which uh, flourished by virtue of their connections with the ruling Greek dynasty. Okay. First one was a guy named Yosef Mentovia in the time of the uh, Ptolemies. As I say, it's not important, but it actually developed several mafias. And as you know, just because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys doesn't mean that they're all together. The various mafias fought with each other. And you had clashes in the streets of Yerushalayim and others. And in such an environment, uh, the Sanhedrin's power functionally became nil because Somebody can commit a murder and get away with it, and so Henry can't do anything about it because he's got protexia in terms of his connection with the ruling powers, and what is the function of some Henry? So if you can get away with murder, you can get away with anything. And this, unfortunately, is what happened. These people are the ones I just read to you who went to King Antiochus somewhere along the line and asked him and solicited for him permission to be enrolled as Greek citizens to basically convert and to try to, uh, and to be given complete control over the affairs of Judea. The king didn't think it up himself. And as I told you, it would be very remarkable had he done so, because this was not on the Hellenistic agenda. They did not think in terms of trying to uh, you know, destroy the Jewish religion. But here in Judea, and Eric is wrong, the time we're talking about was a small territory, much smaller than the state of Israel today. It was Yerushalayim, and you know, 20 miles around Yerushalayim in all directions. A very small area. The whole wars of the Maccabees, and all the events of this period of Jews, Maccabee and Hanukkah, took place in a very, very small stage. All the battles are fought in the hills of Judea and, and, and around there. And I'm sure everyone here, or almost everyone at least, has been to Eretz Yisrael, and you've all seen the Hare Yehuda, and you can easily imagine yourself with all those mountains everywhere, right? All around the place, how it's easy for armies, especially in those days, before the Arabs came in and deforested the whole place when there were a lot of you know, foliage and, and fields and forests all over the place. There was like Robin Hood. He'd run around mountains and hills and all over the place, and that's how the Maccabees were able to survive. See? You know, I could be a Greek general and see them six mountains away. I can't catch them. Now, if they would have lived in Bogo, it's all flat area, it would have been a different story. So it's not surprising, as I say, to see that, uh, unfortunately, that this mafia arose, flourished because of its connection with the government, and eventually became so arrogant as mafias always do, that they're going to have total power, total control over everything. And it is in that context that we have the famous story of Hanukkah. Because they went from here to uh, gain permission from the king, not only to uh, themselves be considered Greeks or Hellenists, not only for themselves to build gymnasiums, but uh, to force the others to do so. And when that happened, things reached ahead. Before that happened, however, two very important incidents. First of all, King Antiochus, in the course of his uh, reign, got himself involved in a war with Egypt, as they always did. He invaded Egypt, conquered the country, and then was forced out by Rome. On his way back, he faced the problem of meeting payroll. Because it's a large army and the campaign didn't work. And he had to meet payroll. So what do you do? So the nearest city that had any money was Jerusalem. He ruled the city of Jerusalem. This was part of his kingdom. But he attacked it, and uh, he sacked the base of Migdash. It says here, after smiting Egypt, 
Now the Yod was turned back, went up against Israel, and entered Jerusalem with a great army. He entered the temple. This is all originally in Greek. It's not when it hasn't survived in Hebrew. He entered the temple in his arrogance. He took the golden altar, that's Mizbech Hazor, which he melted down for money to pay the soldiers. He took the lamp for the light, that's the menorah that we are all familiar with from Hanukkah. That was melted down to pay the soldiers. And all the menorah's equipment, because, you know, they're little golden shovels and brushes and things like that. But he doesn't look at his brushes, he looks at his altar. He needs the gold. He took the table of the showbread, which is the shulchan, the cups, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the golden adornment in front of the sanctuary. All these he stripped off entirely. He seized the silver, the gold, the precious vessels. He also took the hidden treasures, which he found. Taking them all, he carried them away to his own country. He massacred people and spoke most arrogantly. So this has nothing to do with Hellenism. This has nothing to do with his trying to stay back the Jewish religion. This is strictly got to be payroll. And this has nothing to do with cultural values or religious persecution. He needed money. The campaign didn't work out. Jerusalem, unfortunately, was the nearest town. And even though he ruled it, this is, these are the type of people we're dealing with. They didn't mind wiping out their own cities and, and subjects because they don't think a year ahead. Right? A year ahead, we'll worry about that. Right now, as I say, I have to meet payroll of the army now. If I don't, I'm dead. Therefore, long-term planning, as we speak now in the modern world, was unknown in those days. You see? The menorah was taken out? No. I just read it to you. How did the whole days happen? No, I thought the menorah was around the end of the second place. Evidently not. They remade the menorah that Moshe Benno couldn't even make? Have you done by day? We will see. That's exactly the right question to ask. It is very significant in terms of our present-day observance of Hanukkah. It is mentioned with great prominence in the Miguel's Highness, and what you said, therefore, has set it up very nicely. But we will see it. Listen to this, though. Two years later, and we don't know why this, I'm going to read you this now, and once I finish reading you these three sentences, you will know as much about the subject as anyone else, because this is the only source. After two years, the king sent the officer of the Missions to the mercenaries, to the cities of Judah, and entered Jerusalem with a strong force. He spoke peaceful words to them craftily, and they trusted him. Then he suddenly fell upon the city and dealt it a great blow, destroying many people of Israel. So again, this king sent an army for some reason to attack his own town of Jerusalem. He despoiled the city, burned it with fire, raised its houses and its surrounding walls. They led the women and children captive and took possession of the cattle. They fortified the Ir David. Everybody even knows where Ir David is. That's across the street from the Kotel. You take the bus. It's the Arab world, right? And as I mentioned always, you know, Yerushalayim was lower at that time, so Yerushalayim was relatively speaking higher. Anyone who's been to Israel in the last couple of years, they've taken those tours, you know, really of the hotel, into the, those tunnels, I forget what they call them. Is anybody familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. You know, you see, they'll show you now how far the floor really was, yeah. and you see the level of Yerushalayim was much, much lower in those days before one destruction upon another destruction upon another destruction upon Mounds of earth upon it. So anyway, the Irdobit, this small area, how big is the Irdobit? It's Silwan, as they call it, the Arab village, right next to It's not big. Okay, it's a small little chapter. It's not very small. You know, how, how big that? 30 blocks, something like that. So anyway, they fortified the Irdobit with a high and strong wall with mighty towers, and they make, became their citadel. They put sinful people there. Now, sinful people is referring to Jews. They didn't put in soldiers. They put in these mafia guys and their families, men who were transgressors against the Torah. And they entrenched themselves in it. They stored up arms and provisions. And after collecting together the spoils of Jerusalem, they laid them up there. They became a great menace and a service and ambush against the sanctuary and evil adversary against Israel continually. 
So, from this period, this is all for the, the problem of Hanukkah, the decrees against the Jewish religion happened. Uh, about three, four years prior to that, the Beit HaMikdash was totally sacked of anything that was worth anything. All the gold and silver and anything, the slightest, uh, any possession, the slightest value, was, uh, was, was stripped. Uh, and basically, basically, the business was trashed. Thank you for me, because we'll see later on if I have a chance tonight. But when the Maccabees finally come back in, they describe it as looking like, uh, you know, grass all over the place, growing out of the walls, a little bit of forest. So, uh, basically, it was trashed. The city of Yerushalayim ceased to exist in the sense that it looked like Berlin after the war, Hiroshima. You know, most of the houses are torn down or half torn down. The people were all killed or fled. Those who didn't were carried off into slavery. So, Yerushalayim is a ghost town during the entire period of the Maccabean Wars. There is one small area, which is this fort, across the street from the base of English, more or less, which is, you know, has a small Greek garrison with the Jewish collaborators, with the, with the uh, helmets, the Jews, which is mafia guys. Okay? And that's the way it goes. And that's what we're dealing with. Okay? All the other Jews, such as were able to fled, where they flee elsewhere into the small area, I say it's 20 miles, 30 mile radius around the Island, and that's where they were. You see? So, this had nothing to do. This was strictly a matter of money. As I always keep saying, it had to be payroll. Two years or so after this, this mafia, who obviously must have not been hated by every Jew, realized, evidently, this is a judgment I'll make it, but I think it's founded on the facts, that, uh, you know, it's us or Judaism. It's a question of power. If the people still remain religious Jews, they'll always hate this and we'll never be at peace. Therefore, we have to kill the Jewish religion. Nothing personal, but And therefore, they got permission from the king, I don't want to read the long passages again, and to be backed up by the army of King Antiochus, who never again entered Israel. You imagined in your minds or read books about wars between Judah Maccabee and King Antiochus that is inaccurate because, uh, you know, the only two sources we have on it talk about the fact that he never again was in Israel, he went off somewhere else, where he died, years later, robbing a, <laughs> one of his own uh, cities. If we are you know, dealing, as I say, with uh, you know, this period, we're talking about a phenomenon of Jew on Jew, from the Civil War. These people got the Greek army behind them, and they, as only Jews can do to other Jews, went after the mitzvahs of the Jewish religion. I mean, the Greeks may have heard about circumcision. Did they know about Rishkodesh? They prohibited Shabbos. Did they know all about the little mitzvahs and ins and outs of Shabbos? Of course not. This is something that only a Jew can do to other Jews because they're familiar with it. And therefore, we have this terrible uh, you know, phenomenon of what we call the Shas HaShemah, this great wave of religious persecution, which hits Israel, instigated by Jews. Actually, I will read you a paragraph, but you know, why not? You'll hear it from the uh, original source anyway, and you'll get an idea of what's going on. It says, Then the king ordered all his kingdom to become one people. Everyone should forsake their own laws. Even many from Israel consented to his worship, meaning to worship the king, and to sacrifice to idols, and profane the Sabbath. The king also sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and cities of Judah, commanding them to follow customs foreign to their land, to withhold burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's carbonus to profane Shabbos, the Sabbaths and festivals, to pollute, to be metame, 
sanctuary, the Beis and the Holy Ones. There were a lot of Jews who were Nazirim, what we call Perushim, people who led lives of Tahara. It's the whole ritual of living which is dead today, ever since the Beis HaMikdash. You know, I'm a Kohen. <laughs> you know, I could not be in this room if this was, you know, thousands of years ago, unless I had ever been sure that there wasn't a dead body here or anything, had ever been here, and had certain things had to be done. I couldn't walk if there was a sheriff somewhere. You see? A what? A sheriff, you know, if there was a dead uh, mm -hmm. mouse somewhere. Right. I would have to make sure if I ever been there. Meaning, if you were uh, there, believe me, the laws of Kilman Tower are very complicated. And it meant that a Kohen was always on guard, had to live a different type of life, and had to live a life of constant uh, awareness, and never be uh, off guard. This was expected from someone who is appointed by Hashem. This is, uh, you know, being a coin was a difficult task in the old days, which is why when they report, you know, if they get trumor or something like that, it's a small compensation for leading a very difficult life. So all this is gone. Because basically English is gone, these rules have come to disuse. But in those days, they were, and now they're told to pollute the holy ones, to build high places and sacred goats, groves, uh, and idols, sacrifice pigs' flesh and unclean cattle, to leave their children uncircumcised, and to defile themselves with every kind of uncleanness and profanation, so that they might forget the Torah and change all the ordinances. Whoever would not obey the order of the king uh, was to die. And it goes on to say that uh, on the 25th day of Kislev, on the 25th day of Kislev, in the 146th year, this king ordered the erection of an abomination of desolation upon the altar. Now, an abomination of desolation, this is in Greek, the Hebrew word, we know from the Sefer Daniel, which a great deal of Sefer Daniel talks about this, if you choose to interpret it that way, Shikut Shomein, any of you have ever read Daniel, Shikut Shomein is the worst form of imprecation that can be found in the Hebrew language. It's the greatest revulsion of disgust. And they can't, in the, in, in the Tanakh, and in here, the Jews cannot bring themselves to use the words. They put an idol on the altar. A Jew couldn't, he just couldn't say it. See? It's so disgusting. They put a horrible object, an abomination of desolation. That's, you know, in ancient Hebrew, that's the worst way you can describe something like this. And the Greeks did this, officially converting the base of Migdash to a pagan temple on 25 Kislev. Right? Erected an abomination of desolation upon the altar, and in the surrounding cities of Judah, they erected altars. They burned incense at the doors of the house and streets, and all that they went around every Jewish house to burn incense in the house, and that turns it into a base of a bizarre from the Jewish point of view. So, you understand if you're a Jewish, this wrecks your house, which is on purpose that you want to do that, in order that the Jews would feel that they have no choice but to go along. The books of the Torah, the, the Torah scrolls, the Sacred Sifri Torah, which they found, they tore into pieces and burned. Wherever a book of the covenant, any kind of uh, copy of the Tanakh was found in anyone's possession, or if anyone respected the Torah, the decree of the king imposed the sentence of death upon him. Month after month, they dealt Brutally, with every Israelite who was found in the city, on the 25th of this month of Kislev, they offered sacrifices upon the altar, which was set on the altar of burnt offering. In other words, they officially started a round of Lahavdil, carbon tumid, every day of a Zorro for, for, you know, Greek deities, once a day, twice a day, whatever ritual it was, on the 25th day of Kislev, which is the winter solstice, and a different significant pagan uh, rituals, and so forth. This has always been the great retort, which many non-Jewish scholars or non-religious scholars, whatever, they, not anymore, but years ago, when they said, well, Hanukkah is really, really a pagan festival. So what are you talking about? I said, well, everybody knows. 
25th of Kisling, that's the winter solstice or something like that, which is a well-known time in the, you know, in the Greek religion, and therefore he sees even the ancient Jews were into this stuff. And the answer is, of course, these gods assume that they never even read the book of Maccabees, which is later on we'll see that the Gadafka waited on the 25th of Kislev to, re to restart the base of Medish as a base Hamigdosh because they wanted to match the day that the Greeks had converted into there. You see? So it has nothing to do with being a, great, a, a pagan festival, the opposite. Uh, somebody have a question? I have a question. <laughs> um, so, isn't that what the solstice is? Wouldn't that be? I don't know if it's exactly the winter solstice, whatever it is. It's the solar calendar, not by the lunar calendar.
as I told you, if you realize the terrain at that time, one could flee to the earth. The Greeks, in this period, were heavily armed soldiers, not really good for mountain fighting. The Jews had the advantage of having no weapons and no arms, so they could run around a lot. And uh, this is really what happened right away. The person that Montesquieu killed, obviously, was one of these traitors, whatever you want to call them. The word traitor doesn't do justice to it. The word a criminal does. It's not a question of politics or allegiance. It's a question these people are, are thugs. They're using religion, as it were, as a cover uh, for expanding their own power and agenda, as it were. And anyway, he fled. And he had no choice. The point I wanted to bring was, well, anyway, what happens over the following year was very interesting. There is, in West Point, the American Military Academy, a series of 22 or 23 statues of great commanders in world history. Napoleon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Frederick the Great, whatever. And one of them is Judas Maccabeus. The only Jew among them. Now you'll tell me, so how do you know about Judas Maccabeus? Well, yeah, I told you, it's in the New Testament. You know, they know this better than most Jews. Right? I read their Bible most of the time. Jews is, unfortunately, I teach this, so take it from me, most Jews don't know the Bible. It's, it's a sad uh, state of affairs. Now, uh, the reason that Judas Maccabeus, as he's called, and they got from the Greeks that are right, we can't say it's Hebrew, but we have no idea what it's like. The reason he's, he's uh, put there as a great military commander is because he's considered the founder of guerrilla warfare. Which is very interesting, especially for those of us who remember the Vietnam War. Because what they do right now is protect what has been fought in all guerrilla wars ever since. And that is that what Montesquieu and the others proceed to do is, uh, in the mountains, a very small number, they said, well, we're going to kill the bad Jews. They don't go and attack the Greek army. There's no point that they're not going to win. You see? What they do is they wait till nighttime. And then they would go into villages, and there was anybody who was a member of the Hellenists or something like that, Jews, that would kill them. If they would find a baby who was uncircumcised, they would circumcise it. Now, why would they, if there was an altar set up in the area, they would tear it down. This is a political move as much as anything else. Do you see the point of circumcising every uncircumcised baby? You're forcing that family to make a choice. You see? If they have an uncircumcised baby in the family, they say, uh oh, this is a public thing, you can't, we might as well join them. It's just very, it's horrible. It's very brutal. Well, they're living in a brutal time. And we're also told, very interestingly here, and this is one area where the Book of Maccabees jives very strongly with the Gemara, the Gemara about Azara, that there was this incident where a bunch of Jews who were religious ran away, hid in a cave. The Greeks found them. We're going to attack them on Shabbos. They said, come out. They wouldn't come out. The Greeks came in and killed them. They wouldn't fight back on Shabbos. They asked him, why wouldn't they fight back on Shabbos? Well, halakhically, this is a perfectly sound reasoning. Because many are aware that uh, in Jewish law, there's what we call the big three. Gila Rai Shvichas Dama Vodazar. Yehari Bal Yavar. That if someone comes and puts a gun to your head and says, eat this trade sandwich or I'll shoot you, eat the sandwich. Yavar Bal Yavar. If someone puts a gun to your head and says, do such and such a sin or I will kill you, you do the sin. Because your life is more important than that particular mystery. However, there are big, there's a big three. Gila Raishu has done with Zora, which your life is not more important. If someone puts a gun to your head and says, shoot that guy or I'll kill you, 
you have to allow yourself to be killed. If you're not more precious than him. If someone act, tells you to do an act of pagan worship, or I'll kill you, you have to let yourself be killed. And if someone tells you to commit an act of um, immorality, however that's defined, uh, one has to allow himself to be killed rather than do that. This is very famous, well familiar. Those who know the Allah well will know that that rule of what we call the big three applies in normal times. The Shas Hashman, when there is a missionary campaign against the Jewish religion, when there's a wave of religious persecution against Judaism per se, all of the Tariq Mitzvahs become the big three. In the time of Ashmad, if there is an effort to destroy the Jewish religion or attack it, if someone puts a gun to your head and says, eat this sandwich, you must die. Because that becomes the front line. Every Mitzvah, when Judaism is under attack, is as important as any other Mitzvah. I always call this the red shoelace rule because the Gemara says you can't even change the color of shoelaces. If the guy are wearing red ones and the Jews are wearing black ones, you can't even, and a guy puts a gun to your head and he says, change it to red, to, to, to uh, Arkansas and Masani, you know, to change the color of your shoelaces, you should die because that is a significant act in the context of that kind of campaign. Therefore, the story of what the Hasid, what these people did in the cave is very understandable. It's well, it's Shabbos, to be attacked, to fight back would be Machal Shabbos. It's a Shas Hashmad. You're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to violate the slightest mitzvah in a time of Shema. So even if it means that we will all be killed, that is what the Torah requires. Okay? And they said we are dying against all justice, and you know, God should be our witness. Uh, what happens up here? However, let me read you this paragraph, and then I'll tell you what the Gemara says. Well, they weren't attacking them to make them a Mechal Shabbos. They were attacking them to destroy them. No, that's not true. They said, come on out and you know, convert whatever, and everything will be fine. It was, a, it was a strictly religious thing. I can read it to you if you want. They said to them, this is enough. Come out and obey the command of the king, and you will live. But they answered, we will not come forth, nor will we obey the command of the king to profane the Sabbath day. Okay? And they died. Now it says, when Matthias Yo and his friends heard this, they mourned greatly over these people. And they all said to another, quote, If all of us do as our brothers have done and do not fight against the heathen for our lives and our laws, they will soon destroy us off the face of the earth. Then they made the following decision, quote, If any man attacks us in battle on the Sabbath day, let us oppose him, let us oppose him, lest that we may not die as our brothers did in the hiding places. This is known in the Gemara, in the as one of the two famous takonas of the Bez in Shalash which is you can fight back on Shabbos. And the idea behind it is obvious if you choose to follow this line of thought. And that is, if you're attacking me, Islam, because you want to change your religion, is one thing. But if, if, if I'm Michal Shabbos by killing the guy that's trying to get me to be Michal Shabbos, that's not called being Michal Shabbos. I'm fighting, I'm preventing the person from making me be Michal Shabbos. In other words, I am breaking the Shabbos in order to protect Shabbos. That's a tricky line of reasoning. And it's not something that every individual does on his own. But as a Bezdin, they said that this is the policy that should be followed, and this, of course, is the halacha until today. This is why, halachically speaking, quote unquote, the state of Israel, they were, remember the Yom Kippur War and all that kind of thing. Uh, there was no question about fighting back on uh, on Shabbos uh, or Yontif or whatever it is. You follow what I'm saying? The whole point is, what am I supposed to be stupid and let this guy go and shoot me? That's crazy. I'd rather kill him because he's trying to get me to be Mechalasha. That's one of the two, two excuse me, famous Tarkanas of the Beth and Shel The other one, interestingly enough, I'll tell you right now, uh, is the other famous Tarkanas that they did was to prohibit Yichud with a non-Jewish woman. 
Strictly speaking, the Jewish law, Minarisa, prohibits yichud, a man being alone with a woman, with what we call an erbo. You know, someone to whom he's prudent. For example, married lady with someone other than her husband, or, some, or uh, a person with, with a relative, it would be considered ancestors, not a very close relative, or something like that. You know, various rules and regulations. Didn't apply a guy. They're not considered, a, 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 you know, they're not, it's not an ancestral or whatever relationship. So, but in the time of Bezdin Shkashmanon, the Gemara Rebbe tells us that they prohibited Yichudim with non-Jewish women, which means in the context of these wars, there must have been problems, uh, you know, that mandated that. But be that as it may, early on, you see this kind of, of uh, problems arising, and this is the sort of uh, uh, issue that uh, they, they had to grapple with. Matisio, according to the story, died about a year after this whole thing started. And on his deathbed, he made a famous speech, which you can never trust in these books when people make deathbed speeches. And that's very, very much in the style of Greek literature. We'll see later, well, we won't see later on, but believe me, when Judah Maccabee gets killed in battle, he says he was pierced by 44 arrows. And as he died, he said, my brethren, as I lie here dying, I want you to continue this program. I know he's pierced by 44 arrows. And then he a speech. This is part. This is, this is, this is uh, de rigueur in, in uh, classical literature. Nobody dies like that. They always say something memorable. Uh, well, everybody says something famous. Uh, now, and you know, of course, what it means is he must have said something like this, or at least he wanted to say he would have said. Well. To get uh, to move on, what happened here from this point on, and I'll uh, speed up a little, is that uh, you know they started hitting, as they say, all the Hellenists, and just like happened in Vietnam, during what they did was they dominated the subcontinent. They made it impossible for any person who was not a religious Jew to live outside of a fortified area. If you were a Hellenistic Jew or someone who sympathized them, you live in a village, they're going to bump you off. They will come at night and kill you, and then they would disappear. And by the time people called for help, from the Greeks, soldiers, or something like that, they would be gone. This is guerrilla warfare. And what you really are trying to do is, you rule the night, and you rule the countryside. At night time, you're the king, because you know where you want to go, and in the country, you can't have soldiers everywhere, they can only have them in fortified or concentrated areas, especially when they have these professional armies with armor and all that kind of thing. Thank you. Thank you. The, and uh, therefore, within a short time, uh, at least in certain sectors, the initiative went over to this very small group of uh, guerrillas. You see? Now, when Hunamakami came along, what happened was like this. It says, the, the Greeks made them. You see that there's two levels, I hope I've made this clear, to this revolt. One is against the Jews, that's the real struggle. And unfortunately, it's also against the Greek government because the king, you know, I guess, who's attacking our soldiers? And uh, what happened was they didn't take it seriously in the beginning. So first this guy named Apollonius, who was like a local police chief, went to attack him and got wiped out by Judah Maccabee. Then, according to the story, a guy named Siron, who was the uh, governor of a larger district, let's say a police superintendent, head of state police, you might say, he came with an army and got beat badly, lost 800 men, until finally he realized this is not a local incident. This is going to be uh, blossoming into a full-scale revolt of a certain type. And so now it becomes what we call the Maccabean Revolt under the leadership of Judah Maccabee. All the information I'm giving you is found only in Judah Maccabee. There's no mention of the same girls. Who wrote this book? Oh, we do not know. That's, that's a very good question. We do not know. It's obviously was a strong, hot Jew, by the way he writes. For some of the passages I did. Is this credible? 
That's the question. If it's not credible, I, I, I don't know because I wasn't there. If, if, it, if it's not credible, then we have no information on it. That's, that's the point I'm trying to get at. It's clear that there's a fair amount of credibility to this. You, you can't deny that. The way he describes a great deal. If you take my word for it, or if not, you'll read it yourself. You'll see that you know whoever wrote this was an eyewitness to a great deal of this stuff. He says, you know, in the Greek army, it had them lined on this side, and when they appeared, you could see the shining, uh, the shine of their armor on the dawn sun, and things of this nature. You see that these are eyewitness accounts. Having said that, does that mean that I know if every bit of this is true? No. That's the problem I started with tonight. Okay. Now, um, until finally, as I say, the thing blew up into a, a, what was regarded as a full-scale revolt. King Ideal was realized he had a problem on his hand. As I told you, he realized he was going to have to increase the size of the army and send it down to suppress his revolt, which meant he needed more money, which meant it was harder than ever to meet payroll, which meant that he had divided his army into two parts and said he went off to the east to try to squeeze money out of the provinces there to pay for the whole thing. But he never came back from there. He stayed there for a year or two or three or something like that, and he died there of some kind of disease of a sickness. The, uh, he left his best friend named Lysias in charge of the other side, meaning the, the part of the uh, empire which was Syria and Heritage Royal, this guy Lysias, who became the regent of the Seleucid Empire, organized one campaign after another, just like the American army went against Vietnam, one wave after another, or if you know your world history, just like the, very, what happened now was very similar to the Dutch War of Independence in Spain, where the Spanish sent one army after another army after another army, and the Jews basically were in the position of they always have to bat a home run, because they could never afford to miss once. If they, they have to win every battle. Israel, unfortunately today, faces this problem, the state of Israel. They have to win every war. They cannot afford to lose a war. The Arabs can afford to lose a war. They can send another one, another one, another one. We can't afford it. Same thing at that time. And uh, as it happened, Huda Maccabee beat them. They said, I want to go in each and every, uh, you know, the each and every battle. I had a great deal of time I would do that. But it's amazing. And if you read the tactics he used and the other things, you begin to see why he's considered one of the great commanders. Um, Oliver Cromwell, for example, who never lost a battle, always carried the masterpiece by his side. Uh, because he always caught the, the tactics. Uh, and other great generals in history. But a great deal of this had to do with the fact that Hunter Maccabee had a fanatical army to his side, very small. Two, three thousand men, four thousand men sometimes. And it's, and it's very interesting, in one battle, for example, and I say I don't want to get too bogged down in this, in one battle, for example, it was like 3,000 against the 46,000. And so, on the eve of the battle, he assembled the soldiers, and said they took, and to psych out everybody, he, uh, first of all, said, as the Torah prescribes, at least for Muhammad's Roshuz, uh, uh, anybody just got married, out. Anybody just built a house, out. Anybody just planted a vineyard, out. You know that rule. And anyone who's scared, anyone who's scared out, he'll tell me, how can you afford to do it? The truth of the matter is it's very smart. If it's 3,000 against 46,000, it's not a difference whether it's 3,000 or 2,000 against 46,000. <laughs> 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 it's not going to make a difference. So you might as well have a hardcore, at least the people who are there want to be there. And as the Torah says, make the elders scared as you are scared. And second of all, the remaining troops, what he did was they found, they had found, as we see today in Holocaust museums, desecrated Sifri Torah, upon which the Greeks had written all kind of pagan or pornographic uh, designs in mockery. 
and they passed these in front of soldiers. And remember what they've done to us. Look at this. And they passed, and they and they took out replicas of the big day coin goto. And he says, We no longer have a coin goto. Remember this. And of course, by the time he finished, you're ready to die. Right? These guys are ready. And they beat them. It's amazing, you know, 2,500 against 46,000. This is, uh, it's not in the Torah or anything else. It's, uh, you know, written in the Greek. Now, absolutely amazing. And, you know, there was a series of several battles, which they sent one army into being, another army, and one ar army into being. Now, let me tell you right now, whether you know this or not, in the long run, Jim we lost. Six or seven years later, after this, he was killed in battle by the Jews. A story of Hanukkah takes place in a respite in between two or three, two of these battles. After he beat Lysias the third or fourth time, and what basically happened was the Greek team with a huge army. First they came with 46,000, then they came with 55,000, then with 75,000, then with 100,000. Amazing. See? And the Jews at the, at the peak, according to this, never had more than 10,000. See? Now, uh, what we're dealing with is a case where you know, they're always coming again and they're always beating them off. In between uh, one of these battles, that is to say, when Lysias was beat the third time, he said, uh, he was discouraged and he said, as I've tried to explain it, he said, well, next time I'm going to come with an army of 120,000. And the Jews knew that he had six or seven months to, you know, until he goes back, reorganizes, and comes back, maybe even longer. And uh, it is during this period when the Jews had won this battle, it turned out to be the month of December. And what he did was, the month of December. Now that the Greeks are out for a short while at least, for six months, the Jews said, well, now let's take over Yerushalayim. And take over the base of Mingus. And that wasn't hard if you follow, if you follow me. What was Yerushalayim? Nobody was in Yerushalayim. You have to fight to capture the city of Yerushalayim. It was a dead city, a ghost town, deserted. The base of Mingus was deserted and trashed. There was, across the street from the base of Mingus, a Greek citadel. But the main body of the Greek forces was away. Is this understood? And I will read you what it says here about Hanukkah. In fact, let me read you the preceding uh, paragraph. Oh, I'll read you two paragraphs. The following year, this is Lysias. He gathered together 60,000 picked men and 5,000 horsemen to fight against the Jews. He entered Edom, meaning they came into Jews from the south, and encamped at Beitsur, where Judah Maccabee met them with 10,000 men. When he saw how strong the expedition was, he prayed and he said, quote, and this is all in Greek, so I can't give it to you in Hebrew because we don't have it in Hebrew. He said, Blessed art thou, Savior of Israel, staved off the charge of the mighty man by the hand of thy servant David. Now, evidently, that's referring to, uh, you know, David and Goliath, David Goliath. And you delivered the camp of the Philistines in the hands of Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his armor bearer. That's a famous story in the Tanakh, a Midmush, where Saul climbed up, I mean, the son of Saul climbed up and defeated the entire army. So it's these things you do not be saying for soldiers can't happen. If Hashem was it. In the same way, him in this camp, by hand of thy people Israel, let them be put to shame, in spite of the mass of their army and their horsemen. Make the enemy cowardly, melt the boldness of their strength, let them quake at their destruction, cast them down with the sword of those that love thee, and let all know thy name, praise thee with him. Unquote. So you see, this is, and then, by the way, they used to fast. Never doubt, which is against military strategy, but as I say, if you got 2,000 men, Throw away the rule book. Then they fell upon each other, and there fell many of the army of Lysias, about 5,000 men, and they ran away from them. 
Melissius saw the growing rout of his army and in turn the increasing boldness of Jewish Maccabees and how ready they were to live or die nobly. He marched away to Antioch and went home. There he levied mercenary troops in greater numbers that he might come back again against Judea. So as I say, this was the last battle of Mitzur, and now they arrested for six or seven months. Okay? Judah and his brothers then said, quote, Now that our enemies are crushed, let us go and purify and dedicate the sanctuary. So now the enemy wasn't crushed. So they thought that they, they weren't but, coming back. And they're not, for a while. Right? Well, what do you mean? They, they didn't think they were coming back at all? Or they just... that's, that's obviously incorrect. They knew they were coming back. The Greeks always come back. Well, what does crush mean? Crush. Interpret it however you want. They weren't stupid. They knew they did come back very, not, not long after. So, I don't, by the way, I don't disagree with the point you're making. Meaning, what I got to think. That's not what yeah, I got to think. Why do you want to make a crush? Nevertheless, you know, you see the situation what it is. But the Greeks did not leave. So they are coming back. It wasn't killed. The army wasn't destroyed. They were just being beaten back. They had come back four times, come back another four or five times. Anyway, now our enemies are crushed by the storm, purified, dedicated century. Since I say they come and take over the base of English, they come to Jerusalem. But they find the city totally empty. The entire army gathered together and went up to Hartzio, Mount Zion. Now, do we know all here where Hartzio is? That is not within the wall of the old city. It's off. Unfortunately, today, Hartzio is a church. So you can't go there. It's kind of funny. The old Zionist movement they went to Hartzio, which is a church. But whatever the case is, I mean, it's a, I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean, it's an, it's an unfortunate fact. But, uh, you know, it's off to the side beyond the Armenian section. So, but it's a hill from which you can see very clearly the base Hamikos. They saw the sanctuary desolated and the altar profaned. The gates burned up and weeds were growing in the courtyards as like in a forest or in the side of a mountain. And the priest's chambers were torn down. This is the scene that they see when they come back to Yerushalayim. The, the Mishnah tells us even more. The Mishnah, famous Mishnah in Midos, which describes the Beis HaMikdash more or less shortly before it was destroyed by the Romans. After, many years after this. And there was a rule, if you read the Mishnah Midos, that there were 12 or 13 places, whenever you walked by in the Beis HaMikdash, you had to bow down and prostrate yourself. Right? Now, imagine being a Kohen in the Beis HaMikdash. Every 20, 30 steps, you have to bow down every time you go by there. And uh, the reason was, those were the, the great gaps, torn in the hole, breaches in the walls of the Azara, of the Beis HaMikdash, torn by the Greeks, which uh, it says when the Hashemunayim came, when the Maccabees came, they repaired those breaches. And uh, therefore, for our purposes, we must imagine the base of Mish as this huge fortress-like structure with gigantic gaps all over the place, torn in there by the Greeks as part of their trashing program. They tore their garments, the Jews did, and they made great lamentation and put ashes on their heads, the Jews and Maccabees army. And they fell upon their faces to the ground and blew solemn blasts upon the trumpets and cried out to heaven. Judah appointed certain men to fight against the garrison in the citadel until they could cleanse the sanctuary. In other words, they might go in the base of Megish, but across the street, a little beyond that, not even that, I mean, it's basically across the road. Across the road is this big Greek citadel, which can shoot at them. So what he said was, he said, oh, you know, take half the army, whatever, you guys conduct a siege, fight against this uh, Greek fort and keep them busy, while the rest of us can take care of the base of Megish. So all during the time of Hanukkah, we have to understand it. You know, the Maccabees are cleaning and the Menorah and the Miracle and all that. That's on this side of the street. On the other side of the street, there's a war going on. Okay? Mamish. Nor, by the way, does the Huna Maccabee ever take that fort. 
That fort lasted for decades. Many, many years later, on the 23rd of the year, uh, 25, 30 years after this, that the fort finally uh, was captured by another Jewish leader, and uh, that was Miguel's time okay. Now, anyway, Judah Mac be selected priests without blemish, so if you need a coin without a moon, except the homes, whose delight was in the law, meaning they were from, they were delight was in the Torah. That's from the Tehillim, isn't it? The Torah is Hashem Kepzor. And they purified this sanctuary, carrying out the stones that had defiled it into an unclean place. So we see, this is the Hanukkah that we talked about, the cleaning out, the rededicating of the base of English. They had stones that had been knocked out by the Greeks in their, you know, stripping and trashing operations and whatever else they did there. These stones are coming. You know, they could be used by Rodezor, they were used by Goyim, whatever it is. These were stones from the base of English, but they become Tomei. The rules of Jewish law are that anything which is Mechobelakarka cannot become Tomei. Even for Rodezor. If something is attached to the ground, uh, it, it doesn't become puzzle, even if it was worshipped. If it's not attached to the ground, uh, then it does. So these were stones that have been lying around all over the place. And as you see from the description that I just read you, Mesa Mesa was really, uh, you know, Look horrible. Okay? And they purified the sanctuary canyon of the stone. They took counsel among themselves as to what they should do about the altar of burnt offering which had been defiled. Now, this is very interesting. They looked at the Mizbeach. The Mizbeach itself had carried off and used it for, for gold. But the other Mizbeach, which made out of earth, you know, the main Mizbeach, was not made out of gold. So it was still there. The Greeks had used it for uh, pagan sacrifices. Whenever. Now, what do you do? On the one hand, it's not, you can use it. I just explained to you anything which is which is attached to the ground. Cannot become defiled in Jewish law. On the other hand, as we'll see, they could not stand the thought that the most sacred spot for the Jewish people, the Mizbeach, upon which the Karbonos had been offered up, that this thing had been defiled, raped, as it were, used for, they couldn't even bring themselves to say the word, used for Avodazar. What should they do with that? And so, a good plan occurred to them, namely to tear it down, lest it become a reproach to them because the heathen had defiled it. This was a good plan. It wasn't required. So what? We're not going to use this mispeah. So they tore it down. And they took whole stones, according to the Torah, you know, and they constructed a new altar like the former one. They built the sanctuary, the interior of the temple. They hallowed, meaning sanctified the courtyards. They made new holy vessels. Now pay attention to this. They made new holy vessels, that's the clay shards, and they brought the candlestick. What's the candlestick? That's in my note. And the altar rinses and table into the temple. Well, they must have made one, but the old one was gone. And they burned incense on the altar and lit the lights and the candlesticks and it should shed light in the temple. That's the only hint you'll have over here whatsoever of the story of the oil. They don't mention it. So it's just a great second. They put loaves of bread on the table, hung up curtains, finished all the work that they had undertaken to do, so that on the 25th day of the ninth month, meaning they were, this could have been finished a week before Hanukkah, as it were, but they wanted to make the inauguration of the new base of Migdash on the same day that the Goyim had set up and defiled it. This would be really in a Diyad Hashem, On the 25th day of the ninth month, that is the month of Kislev, 149th year, they rose early, they offered sacrifices according to the Torah upon the new altar of burnt offering which they had made, at the same time and on the same day which the heathen had profaned it, on that very day it was consecrated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. 
All the people fell upon their faces and prostrated themselves and uttered praises to heaven who had caused them to prosper. They celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days. But the oil, I mean... Wait a minute. They celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days. They brought burnt offerings with joy and offered a sacrifice of deliverance and praise. They also adorned the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields and rededicated the gates and the priests' chambers and fitted them with doors. Thus, there was great joy among the people and the reproach caused by the heathen was removed. Judah's brothers and the entire congregation of Israel then decreed that the days of the dedication of the altar should be kept with gladness and joy at the due season year after year for eight days for the 25th month of Kislev. At that time, they built high walls and strong towers around Mount Zion so that the enemy could never again come and destroy them as done before. Now you know everything that this book has to say about the subject of Hanukkah. That's it. Right? I mean, outside of... This is it. But there is no other source outside of what I'm about to read you about the story of Hanukkah. Just a great problem we always had in history, which is that the best source, so to speak, the most detailed source, when they describe a Hanukkah, there's no mention whatsoever about the oil. On the other hand, uh, if you've followed me so far, uh, let me just say that a year and a half after this, the Greeks recaptured the base of interest. So whatever was set up was lost again. And it did fall in the Jewish hands for a number of years later. Meanwhile, even Machmi himself was killed in battle. And then his brother would took him for a while. His brother you know, wasn't quite, at the very end, his brother was able to take over part of Mason Mason. And he was killed by the Greeks until the last brother finally uh, recovered the entire Mason Mason, the Holy Rishalai. Okay? So as we see, from the Book of Maccabees, we, we get a very good story, but we're missing the famous mindset of the oil. Okay? Any questions? Well, besides the oil, also, wasn't the following year that they made Hanukkah? Say it again, please. It sounds like from the story that that, that year they made Hanukkah, but I thought it was like the following year. Tanner that's Rabbana. true. It says, it says in the, well, I'm about to read you. That's Hanukkah that you're referring to is from the Gilgamesh time. Well, that's, that's in Shabbat. I, I thought I it's in Shabbat. The Gemara is quoting from an earlier source. The earlier source is this, Miguel's Times. Oh, okay. That's what I said before. You were here at the beginning. Miguel's Times is the only book written before the Mishnah. I repeat, before the Mishnah. From the Gemara, it says the famous question that you're absolutely right to raise, which is my Hanukkah. What exactly is Hanukkah celebration about? Rashi says, what's the name? And it's, well, the Tanur Avonon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Tanur Avonon is a device in the Gemara, which means what? What does Tanur Avonon mean? It's quoting a... It's, it's quoting a... It's not a Mishnah, but it's quoting another Tanahitic source. We have... The following sources among the Tanakh that were around. There's the Mishnah, the Tazepta, the Mechilta, the Sephirot, the Sephirot, the Mechilta, the the Baraisas, if you wish, which are not organized. And then there's that strange two books, the Gilles Tainas and the Sefirot. You know, you have eight things to play. Whenever you see Tanakh on you have to find out what, if you want to do right, you have to find out what exactly they quote. And in this case, we have the source, which I'm about to read. And with this, I will. You know, hopefully conclude my remarks in terms of that you will now know what everything the sources have to say about Hanukkah. See? Now, therefore, I'm not going to read from the Gemara. I'll read from the source that the Gemara quotes, which is much fuller explicated. And it's very, very interesting in terms of our development. Now, again, as I say, the Megillus Times is done by months, as you can see here, Elul and Tishrei and Macheshvan and so forth and Kislev. It really pays for the person that's interested to read through the Megillus Tainus because you see from there that there were earlier, that, that already a month or two earlier, the Jews had captured other parts of the base of Migdash. They had taken possession of the base of Migdash. And they, they clearly were waiting uh, you know, for the month of Kislev to make the actual uh, uh, rededication. For example, 
I'll read you this passage from Cheshvan, 23 Cheshvan. That's the quote from Cheshvan, which is a month before Hanukkah. Right? It says, But Esther Miklosa Marcheshvan is taught to Sirigim in Azrosa. And this day the story was destroyed in the Azor. It's one month before Hanukkah. And it says, Here's Mitnesha Bo, Sham Goyim, Abonu Sham Goyim, Mokum, Emidu Alem Zazonos. The Greeks, when they captured the temple, you know, Alexander's time, and they had a citadel across the street, so they set up a place for Znus in the Azar of the Beis Amigas. This is part of their whole attitude of contempt. The place was, as you see, trashed, turned into a, a garbage heap, and worse. So they made a base Zonos in the, uh, in the Azar of the Beis Amigas. You can't imagine a greater blasphemy. They did on purpose. They cannot show greater contempt for the traditional Jewish religion than to set up something like this in the place of the most greatest sanctity of the Jewish people. Not that wasn't their aim. You're right. Uh, I, I, I understand that. Nevertheless, this happened. So the soldiers did whatever it is. The Jews. Who said the Jews didn't start this idea? All we know is, like I'm saying, this is what the sources tell us. Okay, she talk for Yad I mean, we see here, if you follow what I'm saying, from a concatenation of political events, that the Greeks absolutely got involved one way or another in attacking the Jewish religion. Right? Our whole point was to try to elucidate through the sources how it was that they departed from the north. And the answer we see is the Jews got them into that. But once they did it, they did it. Okay, she talk for Yad Beis Chashmanoi, Miguel's time, says when the Maccabees won. They took it and tore it down, obviously, destroyed it. This base zonus. When Master Shamabonim told and underneath it, somewhere they found diamonds. But Vinimalayim with guns with some, and they didn't know what to do with them. They could send them traits, and they buried them because of a Zara or something like that. Because they didn't know, you know, is this from the zonus, from the Greeks, or was this something from the ancient base of Migos? They didn't know what to do with it. So you need them. They buried it away, and told somebody should know what to do with it. They're told to this day, whenever this book was written. So it's all you know here, somebody comes and tells whether they're Tommy or Torah. That day was declared a Yonkov. That's a month before Hanukkah. You see that from this alone, the Hashemunah had taken it there. Now, as I say, to get to the chase, it says on the 25th of Kislev, there's something called Hanukkah. It's eight days long. Below the mitzvah, we're not allowed to have a tested. Okay. Now I'm going to read you what it says. And I'll ask everyone to pay close attention to this. When the Greeks entered the base of Migdosh, they were metame all the oil. And when the Chashmaran came, they could only find one jar, which was untouched, and they had to see the coin got along. Right? And then they had the miracle of the eight days. It was only enough oil for one day, and it lasted for eight days. The following year, they would covea that it should be celebrated for eight days. Now, then it goes on to say, wait a minute. But why eight days? In other words, all the other Hanukkahs always were seven days. Plus, over here it says, as we know, it's the famous Kasha of Mesi Yosef. The first day was no miracle, there was enough oil for one day. So this question is obviously not from Mesi Yosef, it's pre-Mishnah. And the answer is no terrorists that we find. If we look at the original source, 
as many are accustomed to come up with things long to the tip, but rather to say, Ein Hachinami. Where's this business of eight days? Meaning, if it was really a Hanukkah model to remembering, the original Hanukkah would have been seven days. It is not, therefore. So what's it all about? It is not a matter of the a miracle of the oil, because for that alone, they made a one-day celebration. See? You know, when it comes, like, like all these other days in the Middle times. Every time the 25th day of Kislev comes along, we should remember there was a nace once in the base of English. Something with oil. Don't have any fast days on it, and don't have any hespids on it. And move on. But what's this business of departing from the norm and making an eight-day celebration out of it? When the in the times of the kings of Greece, when the Chashmonim beat them, they came in and they rebuilt. They built an altar and they put it in cement. That's the altar we just spoke about. The technical klisharis, and they had to make new kalim. And that was an eight-day thing, meaning that when they came back. It took them eight days to fashion a new altar and new caleb. They weren't necessarily fancy, as we'll see in a second, but basically ad hoc. But they wanted to get the base of English moving, somehow or other. And there was some, it, it was an eight-day period when they set their goldsmiths and artisans or whatever it is, to use whatever materials at hand to make new klisharis and a new uh, mizbeah and a new whatever they used in the base of English. And in order to commemorate this fact that we are told here, the Chacham said, never forget those eight days. Now, to us, it seemed like a detail. If you lived at that time, it wasn't a detail. It was very significant. All the stuff in the base of Mishnah had been destroyed. All the cable in the base of Mishnah had been defiled. Most of it had been melted down. The stuff that wasn't melted down was used for pagan purposes. It was a horrible thing possible for a from Jew. And then, they went through a period where everybody got together somehow, we don't know how, and made new ones. They said, well, let us never forget these, these eight days, this week-long business, when we made the new ones. And therefore, we're going, we're going to also make this holiday or this time of Hanukkah, which is a time not to fast on or to, to uh, have husbands on, we'll make it for eight days. So the eight days is to commemorate the Misaskim of Clay Shorts that, that, that they were what making we the, the, the things in the base of English. So what are we lighting eight days for? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what's this doing with the candles? So Gamaria, see me Hanukkah. She told me that they want to make a commemoration. All right. Don't fast and don't have any losers. You want to tell me for eight days? Okay. What's the bit with the candles? The Hanukkah is really different than all these other times, which is just days you're not allowed to fast. There's a whole ritual of candles. What's that all about? My Rabbi Adam is there. Lefisha Nichmasi, you want to be Hechel, but Tim will call it Caleb. Because the Greeks had gone and Matami everything. And they had nothing to light. When the Chashmonai came in, a view Shiva Shpude Varez of the Chacham That's the answer to your question. That's what I was waiting They had no time to make a fancy menorah, as you point out, it's very difficult. So they took seven spears, and they stuck them together, and they plated them with some kind of cheap wood, a box, so it should look, you know, a certain facade. And that was the menorah. And they lived it. What right do they have to, to do that? That wasn't specifications that it was supposed to be in there. They have a right to do that? Good question. That's what they did. Right. Say, I, I, I don't mean to Listen what it says. Yeah. But they did it. Whether you think it was right or wrong, they evidently thought it was right. Let me finish. And they started to like. 
And no, that's the, the menorah of Hanukkah that we all talk about with the oil in eight days and all that thing, right? In other words, it was a cheapo sort of thing. The Gemara Vodazara says, later on, they had a chance, they got a, they got a good one. <coughs> okay? They got a good one. But I want to tell you something. A good one satisfies the desire, the requirements of strictly of the Torah law and of aesthetics and all the rest of it. But that menorah that they built with the spirit was the thing that really hit them. You see? They saw the spears and they saw the cheap menorah and they saw the struggle that they had gone through. There wasn't a single family in Kleinsville that hadn't lost people. There wasn't a single person there that hadn't been scarred by the struggle. There wasn't anybody that didn't feel the most unbelievable emotion at seeing this. And those people at that time, we're told here, were Masake. That from now on, whenever this time of the year comes along, and if for whatever reason we decided to make it eight days, light a candle every night. And when you look at that candle, don't ever forget that menorah. And don't think that menorah was a cheap menorah or something like that. Because we pay for that in blood. You know, people die for this. And that's not something to forget. Now, uh, <coughs> this makes very good sense in the following context. The real din originally was one candle a night, period. Neri Shubesa, we all know this, right? The real halacha, even today, the, the, the halacha lamaisa of Hanukkah, to fulfill your legal requirements, is you light a candle in the window every night or wherever. This business of two and three and four and five candles is what we call mahadrin mina mahadrin. You want to go very far. You want to be mahadrin, with the extra medoptic in mitzvahs. Actually, we could talk about the term mahadrin, let's do that for a second. As you see, I, I, this is what the source tells us. It goes and tells us, what about Halal? Why did they make up the thing? You say, Halal, Halal. Whenever a great nace happens, we're supposed to commemorate with Halal. And they felt that this was a great nace, that the fact they were able to get back to Beis English, who would ever have thought of this a year or two ago, when the Jewish people were at the bottom? And this is something that deserves to be commemorated with Halal. That's basically what the Bill's Tarnas has to say on the subject. It's very significant. Because what it means is this. Uh, these remarks uh, will close. What it means is that the original Hanukkah was designed around the idea of a combination of four events. It was designed, the miracle of oil was not designed to be reenacted as we do today. The reenactment ceremony that has become popular among all of us is Mahadrin Min Mahadrin. It's a different thing. What we do now by adding lights every night is we reenact the miracle of the oil. When they go like Bishama, like Bishil, you're reenacting them. One candle this night, another candle that night. What are you doing by adding candles? You're, you're not commemorating the menorah, you're commemorating the days. Because as you know, every night in the base of Mesh, all, all, all seven candles are burning all the time. I mean, if we, were re, if we were literally doing what happened at that time, we'd have seven candles up for eight days. Right? We don't do that. So the lighting of the number of the candles is not to make us imitate the menorah, it's through the mechanism of the menorah to enact in a ritualistic fashion to reenact the days. One day, two days, three days, or as Ben Shaman says, eight days, seven days, six days, whatever. But that's a later development, you see? If this Mahadra Mahadra means you're reenacting it. Originally, what they wanted to do was that light one candle in there, and that candle should remind you of the menorah. The menorah, as I say, though, was made of a piece of uh, a couple of pieces of spears. A couple of pieces of wood. The eight days is because those eight days when they made new Caleb. Who knows if the menorah was made out of spirits, who knows what the other candles were made out of? Right. Who knows? But whatever they were made out of, and they probably weren't as fancy as they had been earlier until they had a chance to do it right, but you know, those people there 
every piece that they build in the base of Mikdash, as I say, they purchased with blood and more. And the miracle itself, Bichlal, which set the whole thing off, is the reason for Hanukkah in the first place. What remains to us to explain is this uh, difference in the sources between, in fact, that the Book of Maccabees doesn't say anything about the miracle of the Yol, and the Chazal, of course, do. It doesn't say someplace in the war Shabbos that they want the oil burning more than it was supposed to be enough for... Uh... I read that. Yeah, no, since it was only enough for one night, let's pray enough. It says that here. This is where the Gemara Shabbos is quoting here. Yeah. See? But I, if you followed, I rushed through this last part because we're running out of time. The uh, point is that uh, it was the miracle of the world that set the whole thing off in the first place. Now, there are arguments in the post-game and the, the Rishonim that say, you know, the Alanisim is more or less designed around the idea of the, of the base of the victory. Okay? This does not hold water from the point of view of history. Because you see, this wasn't a victory, it was just an episode. Shortly later, afterwards, they lost again. A few years later, General McMahon was killed. It is an episode. It is an episode that, made, that has been granted eternal meaning by Chazal, because it's called the Nase you can't take away. Now, why is that mentioned here? That's not clear. The, the best from answer that's given, the only one that I've ever seen, was by uh, the modern history uh, 100 years ago. The Doris Rishonim, the music Isaac Levy, was more or less the greatest of the uh, from historians. He's a person of a very violent temper, wrote all kinds of books against all the other historians and tore him to bits. And uh, his point, and he was fully familiar with what I just outlined to you tonight. And what he says, of course, is, well, the Book of Matthew, by the time it was published, it's the Duke were in power, and they were against all the Mrs. Rabbonon, or at least many of them. And the idea of the eight nights and the oil thing is, a, is a, a revolving around the idea of the Mrs. Rabbonon. And they were more interested, because they were nationalistic and talking about the victories of the Maccabees. They, in purpose, downplayed that aspect and wanted to turn Hanukkah more Zionistic, if you will, more nationalistic holiday. That's the answer. You know, we can argue about it back and forth. Um, but I have tried tonight, at least, to give you the basis for argument. And uh, as I say, now you know what the sources that are out there have to say on the subject of Hanukkah. Good night. Thank you.